This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Be aware, because anybody could, you could have someone in your congregation anytime with a mental illness, and sometimes there's no time to just learn on the spot. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master, joined as always by my friend and co-host James Dolezal. And today we are also joined by a friend of ours, a friend of the Alliance, Simonetta Carr. Her writing can be found on placefortruth.org. She writes these incredible little biographies of figures from church history and events from church history. And some of those have been expanded into books and We love that. I I take every opportunity to point people towards Simonetta's work. Today, she has come in to talk to us about a new book, Broken Pieces and the God Who Mends Them, very different kind of thing from the other work that she's done. So, Simonetta, thanks for joining us today. Hi, thank you so much for having me. We were speaking uh, off the air just a moment ago, and I said to you that this was, in one sense, uh, an incredibly compelling book. I, I read it through very quickly. It was almost a a page turner, but yet such a difficult book to read because it deals with the uh, situation you faced with your son's uh, schizophrenia. And you describe all of that very, very vividly, very carefully. But I wondered as I read, um, what was it that motivated you to write this? I imagine it must have been so difficult to actually put this out there for other people to read? Yeah, initially I didn't even want to write it. It was somebody's suggestion. They read an article I wrote, and I wrote this article before my son died uh, for Modern Reformation. And uh, so they read the article and they said, why don't you write a book? And I didn't want to for several reasons. One mm-hmm. is the emotional, of course. Mm-hmm. And then also, because um, I just didn't think anybody would be interested. I said, you know, this is not the success story because my son died. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a lot of people encouraged me to do it. So my mind was already going there because, you know, after my son died, I just uh, kept rehearsing everything again and trying to figure out what happened and so I said, well, you know, if I'm already going there, I might as well. So some people wonder how I was able to have so much information. But there's two reasons. Uh, one, doctors actually suggest that uh, people uh, who care for people with mental illness write a diary because it can always uh, become helpful in the future. And so I did that. I had a pretty detailed diary. And then at the same time, I'm the type of person who talks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so I, whenever I was in a crisis, I would contact a friend or, or my pastor or somebody and say, you know, what do I do? And, and that's actually a question that you find in part one a lot. What do I do now? Mm-hmm. And so I, I asked these questions. And, and that's how I was able to collect emails, messages, and all the bit of information. And I put them all together. And that was fairly quick. I did it quickly because something I was going through anyway, in my mind, trying to figure out things. And then I actually didn't want to read it again after I just Mm. said, okay, part one is done. And that's it. And then I did part two. That was my 
idea. I, I didn't want to end like that. You know, my son died mm -hmm. and that's it. Even if I think the ending of part one is fairly hopeful because um, the Lord has sustained me so powerfully and faithfully that uh, I think that could be encouraging too. But still, I didn't want to end there. And so part two is more questions that I had, uh, a collection of questions and answers, but I didn't want to give any answers because I probably have more questions than answers even now. But I asked a lot of people. Uh, I read books and I asked the psychiatrists, psychologists, um, pastors, people with schizophrenia, re relatives of people with schizophrenia. I just put all that together and uh, came up with something trying to be encouraging to anyone who may be uh, in the same situation. Well, you did an excellent job of that. And just to let our listeners know, part one is taken up with the story of your son and, and your experience, your family's experience uh, walking with him through this disease of schizophrenia. And then part two is taken up with a more analytical section where you where you try to unpack some of what's what's actually going on in these situations and some of the advice that various people uh, give. So I thought that was a, a very helpful way of of arranging it. One of the things that came through, and you mentioned this just now, that I thought was very helpful was that you, particularly in part one, where you're explaining what happened and reconstructing the the story, uh, you 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 are very open about sharing that you often didn't know what to do, and that there were no simple answers at any point along the way. I thought that kind of vulnerability was probably very helpful. Was that one of the main things that you were trying to get across for people who were reading it and trying to learn from your own experience? Well, I don't know if I was trying to get anything across in the first part. I just was relating my story and I put it in the present tense because it was really as that that's a reflection of, of it, what I was living the experience I was going through and, and yes I uh, many many times I just really didn't know what to do and I think this is a very common experience for people who go through this uh, especially with certain kinds of mental illness like schizophrenia that are very puzzling and there are many different kinds of it too even doctors don't have complete answers there's so much that uh, parents or anyone who, who's caring for people with mental illness or even people who are living with mental illness, they have to navigate through, through a lot of stuff that um, it's very difficult to even understand at the time when you're going through it. It's, uh, it's like you need a crash course and there's no way to take <laughs> this crash mm -hmm. course. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that, I, I basically just told it as it was. Well, one of the other things that I noticed as you, as you did tell what happened is the role that your local church played, um, both in your own life and in your son's life. And I thought that was, that was very pronounced. They were navigating through an, a, a complex situation as well, and 
it did seem as if the the support of that local congregation and the and the discernment of the elders within that local congregation was was vital to the the way this played out in in the life of your family. Yes, yes, and it, it was not easy for them either because, like I said, every case is different. Even if you have a basic knowledge, which I don't think every elder actually had the basic knowledge of the illness, but um, even if you do, there's so many different cases. So one thing I personally learned that I, I'm sure my church probably learned too was to appreciate God's wisdom and cultivate wisdom because you just can't follow a manual in this type of cases. So yeah, they were very helpful and uh, very loving and, and compassionate. And one thing that I will always remember is my pastor coming every week on his motorcycle to play chess with my son. Uh, it's, right. And you have a you yeah. have a picture. I think you have a picture of that uh, in the book yes. as well. Yes. Simonetta, uh, since we're talking about the church and your your pastors were certainly learning uh, as they went through this and and facing the troubles with you uh, and your family, I wonder if if you have any counsel for pastors, uh, certainly this book will speak to parents uh, in, a, in a sympathetic way that identifies uh, with that great difficulty. But I've also some of the readers will be, and many I imagine, will be pastors trying to figure out as shepherds what their place is. You've given us one uh, anecdotal explanation of your pastor's role of just involving himself personally in your home and in your family. But uh, what advice uh, might you give to pastors who are facing a circumstance perhaps like that that you and your family were going through? I think, uh, you know, just being involved, like you were saying, and uh, being friendly when my pastor came, he did not come to preach or, or you know, come with a set uh, speech to give to my son. He just came to play chess. And then in the course of playing chess, something, a little conversation would develop. But it's more like just being there and seeing what the need is. Um, I, I have been visiting different churches, actually, because they asked me to speak. And I, I visited one church where um, also the pastor is very involved and there's several people in the congregation with the mental illness and the pastor has been there visiting them in the hospital. And I think, um, yeah, I think that kind of involvement is very important. And also uh, trying to be informed and to know as much as possible about different illnesses and there's so much to know so i know it's it's difficult but um you know just to be aware because anybody could you could have someone in your congregation anytime with a mental illness and sometimes there's no time to just learn on the spot so mm. if you learn a little bit beforehand that's always helpful and then maybe encourage the congregation and, and that's another thing my pastor did he was saying, if you're looking for a ministry, that's something you can do. Just go visit somebody who's ill, but also uh, with mental illness. And, uh, and so some people 
started to come to see my son after that because it it takes encouragement it's not it's not natural i think for anybody um to just reach out to someone with a mental illness because it's puzzling and mm. many times you don't know what to say and uh, and so you end up saying nothing but that's also not the correct response because i know for me i needed support and i and i had a lot of support but some people gave me support some people were more afraid i guess of saying something and that's okay too you know that's uh i can't expect everybody <laughs> to to really understand but i think it's important i, I was grateful that i had support in my church and i was very grateful when people came to visit my son in fact you know there was a time when he didn't have friends and cuz it just didn't feel like talking to people but then once people talked to him he would talk and say even more than they expected cuz he would uh, really open up his heart but he just wouldn't go and talk to people on his own initiative so i ended up being like the mom you know that that goes can you go play with my son <laughs> which is kind of funny it's 20 year old son but uh, so i appreciate when people just did it spontaneously you're right many of us are afraid to say that we think that if we don't have the perfect word at just the right moment that we're better off remaining silent but uh your advice is good that we need to just speak and involve ourselves into the lives yeah. of us. Yeah, I don't try struggling. to fix it, you know, because right. that's not your place to try to fix it. It's just your place to be friendly and be there for the person. Another anecdote in the book about a, a person I knew that he was very close to someone with schizophrenia and I asked him what did you do? You were so close and you were always with this person, so what did you talk about? It? and he said you know sometimes when the conversation became awkward or or too deep or difficult he would just say you want some ice cream you know <laughs> so yeah. it doesn't have to be some deeply spiritual answers and sometimes it's just being there and being a friend simonetta i'm i'm sure that many of our listeners will have um not only people in their church but perhaps even members of their own family who are struggling with schizophrenia and i wonder what specific advice you might give to parents or grandparents who are up close and personal with this um mental illness uh, how what what kind of advice or counsel w would you give to them well like i said there's a lot in my book but <laughs> no we um, want people to read the book for sure <laughs> yes <laughs> but yeah wisdom is very important um when when i first found out that my son had schizophrenia i i knew nothing about it so i think just being informed a little bit because otherwise you get informed by the media you know that mm -hmm. you just read right. something that the media publishes but that's not um that's not the correct information and so it, it's good to be informed beforehand and then once it happens you know try to get the the, the right information and the right support for me it was very difficult even if they gave me a piece of paper that had support groups 
sometimes they don't their schedule didn't then uh, match with mine or uh, had they had just had a meeting and people on the phone they were supportive sometimes but they are they also need to be careful they can't get into details one thing i found i went to a uh, therapist and i just asked i went with a piece of paper and a pen and i said can you help me and i just explained the situation and and that helped uh, probably more to to get quick answers yeah and then also don't dismiss your knowledge of of the person that you love because sometimes Initially, for me, I was just following what people told me. Mm. Just, uh, you know, this is what you do. So I was following step one, two, three, or I was reading books about success stories and thinking Mm. that if I follow them, you know, my story would also be the same. But, you know, each case is different. It takes so much wisdom and wisdom just doesn't happen overnight. So that's something I, I recommend cultivating. I think it takes humility and it takes going slow and considering different aspects of the situation. We, we live in a world where everything goes fast. You can't face these kinds of things by going fast or looking for quick answers. Yeah, wisdom and then, that, you know, God's sovereignty. Just remembering that's the main thing that pulled me through. And um, one thing I say in my book, you know, God's sovereignty is not a comforting thought if you don't know who God is in Christ. But if you do, then it's extremely comforting. So, you know, going to church week after week, good church that preaches the gospel and just hearing the gospel constantly, hearing who we are in Christ and there's more to reality than what we see under our eyes. And uh, just hearing that after every week just gave me so much strength. Well, along those lines, your last chapter in this book, and and it's in part Mm -hmm. two, of course, uh, recovery from schizophrenia in the already not yet. I thought it was such a beautiful way to end your reflection here. You have a quote in the middle of it from Michael Horton where he, where he writes, a proper eschatology will teach us to expect change because of the reality of Christ's work for us and in us by his spirit, but it will also teach us to expect some disappointment and failure. I was interested in and moved by the fact that you ended on that note, that note of the already and the not yet, uh, the fact that we live in a fallen world, and yet, of course, Christ has intervened in a definitive way. What why was that the note that you wanted readers to end on? Um, I'm not sure if I had a reason why. It was probably one of the things that uh, uh, sustained me the most and mm. a lesson I learned. Because in that chapter, I talk about over-realized, under-realized yes. Catholic, yeah, yeah. which are <laughs> big words, but I guess now for theology and they go. Uh, <laughs> but um, I tend to be in the under-realized um, category many times, mm. you know, naturally, just thinking uh, we're all in a veil of tears and, you know, suffering until the end. But 
I had to learn and I had to really understand that, you know, Christ is still working today. His spirit works today. God is working today. And there are a lot of things that we can expect now in this age. And then there's a lot of things that we have to leave for the future. But I think a good balance between the two is very important. Otherwise, you know, if you're constantly pessimistic and you, you just don't expect anything in this world but sin and suffering, that's not a good atmosphere for <laughs> those who live around you. Well, Simonetta, we're so grateful that you wrote this book. Uh, I, I have recommended it to a number of people already and will continue to do so. It's such a difficult topic. And you wrote about it so honestly and perceptively. So thank you for the book and thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you. James, you and I talked about this book extensively before we got on the line with Simonetta. A difficult conversation to have in one sense because it's a difficult subject. Like she said, there are a lot lot of things we don't know and don't understand. And then it wasn't a traditional success story. And that's how she put it, that it was a... You know, it ended in in tragedy in in her particular case. Yeah, and I think that's, she used the phrase toward the end of our talk of a travail of tears and and being reminded that that's that's not all there is to it. But there's also also the sense in which um, the Lord does lead his children uh, sometimes through the valley of the shadow of death. And there is that time, there are times when we don't know where the next, footstep is going to fall. And and sometimes it, it falls in such a way that doesn't immediately take the burden off of us, but in a certain sense may for a time, maybe even an extended time, increase that sense of burden and weight and sadness. And I, I thought in her case that she does end with a hope that mm-hmm. will one day swallow up and drown these tears, but without without having to put on as if that day has already dawned, Mm -hmm. uh, as if there's no pain between here and that point. Yeah, it's striking that she thought for a long time, among other reasons not to write the book, that no one would be interested in it. And and the thing about it is, why is it surprising to us that there are stories like this, many stories like this in in the Christian church. I mean, if we read the Psalms, the Psalms are full of lament, right. and yet and yet, a book like this almost uh, jumps out at us. It almost shocks us with its, with its honesty. Right, and that, that Christians do this side of glory and rest um, while we don't weep as those without hope uh, and, and confidence that we still weep. And I think maybe there is this expectation that if we're going to share the stories of God's work in our lives, that we we only need to tell the stories about how we came through the valley of the shadow of death, but not not how we're trusting God in the middle of it, because that seems to cast a a pallor mm-hmm. of of you know of, of dread and discouragement. And we want to avoid that. We want to be upbeat. We want to tell people it's going to get better, and here's how it got better for me. And 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 frankly, we want it to get better um, as much as possible, as quickly as possible. Right. Right. And and uh, and so we're more upbeat than the than the Bible is by by a long shot. Or we try to be. It's a sort of false veneer. But right. the other thing that hit me that I wanted to um, just briefly touch on is this notion of being present. If you if you read the book, and she mentions this, one of the most important things her pastor did was to just be there. He didn't 
always know what to say. He didn't always have a way of untangling the knots, but he was there and he encouraged other people in the church to be there as well. And I, I was convicted by that because I think faced with a situation like that, unless I was the pastor and felt, you know, as if it were my duty to go and be with her son, you know, it would just, it's just, we don't have the answers. And so it's, it's, it's often uncomfortable, but she, she said, no, people just showing up was right. so vital. I think it's a temptation, especially maybe this is a unique temptation for those of us who teach for a living, but I, I imagine others feel this too, of if I don't come with solutions, fairly comprehensive ones, uh, that I have nothing to offer. And there's a, there's a sense in which I know I can be tempted this way, even as a parent at times with my children to hold off on having important conversations until I'm ready to have the complete conversation A to Z with all the answers in, in shape. And then you, you do end up missing out on important moments of invested time that may not be complete or resolving everything that needs to be addressed in someone's life, but it's, it's part of what it's going to take to be a source of encouragement or correction or consolation or however the Lord's going to use us, there's a sense in which you have to be there and you have to put in the time to get to that place. And we want to put in the time, we want to be so efficient, I suppose, that we want to get, you know, if I could just condense the time for maximal effect with lots of answers, and then when I get there, I'll put my time in, and and that can be too late. Yeah, in this case, I think uh, she would she would echo uh, that. Well, the book, again, is called Broken Pieces and the God Who Mends Them, Schizophrenia Through a Mother's Eyes by Simonetta Carr. For those of you who are interested, we'll be giving away a copy of this book. If you go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link, there'll be a place to enter to win a copy of the book. But we would really encourage you to read it, it, it even if you have no direct connection right now with someone struggling with schizophrenia or other mental illness. It's likely that you will in the future. Certainly, if you're in any kind of pastoral ministry, you probably already have rubbed shoulders with people struggling in these ways, families struggling in these ways. And and I found this to be a helpful resource as well as a compelling read. And so, Broken Pieces and the God Who Mends Them by Simonetta Carr. We're grateful, as always, for you listening to us today on Theology on the Go. If you know anyone else who you might think would be helped by this podcast, please pass it along to them. We're available on placefortruth.org, but also anywhere that you would normally download other podcasts. We love to hear from you, so feel free to write in and let us know what questions you have or what comments you might have on what we're doing. If you're able to donate, you can do that on placefortruth.org or alliancenet.org. But thanks as always for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.